Hello, and welcome to Macro Horizons High Quality Spreads Episode 3, Better Late Than Never. I'm your host, Dan Creeder, here with Dan Belton as we break down the most important storylines for spread markets each month. In this edition, we focus on the Fed's response to recent volatility in funding markets and what it means for spread markets in the fourth quarter and beyond. Each month, we offer a view on credit spreads, ranging from the highest quality sectors such as agencies and SSAs to investment-grade corporates. We also focus on U.S. dollar swap spreads and all the factors that entails, including funding markets, cross-currency markets, and the transition from LIBOR to SOFR. The topics that come up most frequently in conversations with clients and listeners form the basis for each episode, so please don't hesitate to reach out to us with questions or topics that you would like to hear discussed. We can be found on Bloomberg or emailed directly at dan.creter, K-R-I-E-T-E-R, at bmo.com. We value and greatly appreciate your input. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. So Dan, our expectation for a significant funding market event has been shaping our view for the past few months as we expected funding conditions to deteriorate significantly based on our projections for increased treasury issuance, a potentially significant drain in reserves, and typical year-end funding pressures arising from balance sheet restriction into year-end. Turns out we didn't even need year-end technicals, did we, Dan? No, we didn't. And it seems like the reserve draining that's been going on for a few years now has finally hit an inflection point. So last Monday, we had heavy coupon settlements combined with corporate taxes due. Treasury's cash balances increased by just over $100 billion in the beginning of last week. This associated reserve drain seemed to put some serious pressures on the repo market. So we walked in on Monday and repo rates were under some stress. SOFR ended up posting 23 basis points higher than the previous week. So on Tuesday, the situation got significantly worse and the Fed was forced to step into the market, injecting $75 billion worth of liquidity. SOFR ended up posting at five and a quarter, well above any rate that it's posted ever before. And Fed funds posted outside of the target range for just the second time in this current monetary policy regime. Yeah, and I think the reaction in swap spread markets was rather interesting. Like you said, the stress really started on Monday. And on Monday, we saw swap spreads narrow in, as you'd expect, given a spike in funding rates. But then on Tuesday, amid the worst of the funding crunch, as you highlighted, swap spreads are actually wider. But this makes sense when you consider that there was a Fed meeting the next day. And swap spreads widened as market participants expected the Fed to step in with some meaningful relief to the excess collateral problem that the market's been battling with for a while. Anything from increasing their balance sheet to the possibility of a standing repo facility. And now we've been talking about a standing repo facility as a possibility. In fact, it was our base case for a September announcement of a standing repo facility for most of the year. We just switched off of that call after the July FOMC minutes. And everyone expected the Fed would come in meaningfully at that point. Unfortunately, sort of the opposite happened. Not only was no standing repo facility announced, but Chairman Powell seemed rather unconcerned about the funding market stress and said that they had initiated these operations and they had successfully dealt with the funding market crunch and that Fed's funds was once again in, in the middle of the range. So in response to that, swap spreads predictably nosedived as the market felt like the problem of excess collateral wasn't effectively dealt with by the Fed. And then the sell-off intensified into Thursday, where SOFR and Treasury positions significantly underperformed OIS and LIBOR, as the question of what was going to happen with this excess collateral continued to grow. 
Then finally on Friday, the Fed came in with what the market was hoping that they would come with on Wednesday. They increased the size of their overnight repo operation to at least $75 billion and also introduced a term repo operation of at least $30 billion that would help market participants get funding over quarter end. Now this, while not a standing repo facility, I mean, this is a significant intervention by the Fed that I think will significantly help in quarter end and will probably keep repo rates relatively contained despite the drama we saw last week. Now at this point, we have to call into question whether or not the Fed's ever actually going to implement a repo facility. It certainly seems like the market could benefit from one, but maybe there are some downsides. What are your thoughts? Yeah, so these operations that are ongoing, as long as the Fed continues to provide guidance that they're going to remain in effect, at least throughout the fourth quarter, I think we'll have a similar effect to a standing repo facility. So right now, the Fed has committed to doing these through October 10th, like you said. We think that there's going to be some more guidance as that deadline approaches, and the Fed is going to offer more operations for the rest of the quarter. And the market largely expects that that'll be the case. So the impact of a standing repo facility relative to these term operations would obviously depend on on the parameters, but that would be probably marginally more effective at controlling repo rates, keeping the Fed fund rate in the target. But it does seem like the Fed is sort of debating some of these finer points of the facility and I think has some concerns, particularly over the counterparty list, and it is probably wary over lending to non-primary dealers. Yeah. So, I mean, I think you could see a scenario where the Fed does these repo operations as they try to work through some of the operational challenges of a standing repo facility and potentially implement one in 2020 once those issues are ironed out and kind of use these operations as a bridge to the standing repo facility. But you highlight some good points there as to some concerns the Fed might have in trying to come up with a standing repo facility. And at the end of the day, we may not even need one. As you said, these repo operations, they do the same thing as a standing repo facility. The only reason they might be a little less preferable is you don't have that certainty. And the Fed could even change that. They could they could go out and say, we're going to do these repo f- operations for the time being or leave it open-ended, something like that. And that way you, you give the market the relief for the collateral problem that they're looking for, for the most part, without committing to a repo facility. So at this point, I, I don't think it matters much. And the Fed's indicated that they're planning to do more to help the excess collateral problem in addition to the repo operations. And, and that's in the form of increasing their balance sheet once again. At the press conference on Wednesday, Chairman Powell seemed to highlight increasing balance sheet as his actual preferred method of dealing with the collateral problem. He mentioned numerous times at the press conference that they would begin to increase the size of their balance sheet in the hopes that these repo operations wouldn't be necessary in the future. In addition, the nature of Fed reinvestments now should help relieve some of the pressure caused by excess collateral as well. Now that the Fed will be buying $20 billion or so each month in treasuries as the MBS portfolio winds down. So Dan, does the combination of repo operations, a growing Fed balance sheet, and reinvestments from MBS into treasuries solve the excess collateral problem? Well, it should be a good starting point, especially if you are assuming that these repo operations are going to be pretty consistent. But the collateral problem is not going anywhere on its own. So in the fourth quarter, we're expecting about $400 billion in net treasury supply. This will be about $300 billion in coupons and just under $100 billion worth of bills settling. So we expect, particularly on month-end and mid-month coupon settlement dates, there could be some of these stresses in the repo market start to resurface. 
And like you said, Chair Powell has has highlighted growing the balance sheet as his preferred method of dealing with this problem. But we don't really think that this alone is going to be enough to combat it. When the Fed does start to regrow its balance sheet, it'll do so to keep pace with growth in currency and circulation. This implies something of the magnitude of $100 billion to $120 billion in purchases each year. To put that in context, after the $400 billion in net treasury supply we're seeing for the rest of this year, we see about $1.1 trillion in net supply in 2020, followed by $1.2 trillion in 2021. So this moderate growth in the Fed balance sheet is going to be rather small compared to the growth in treasury supply, especially if that treasury supply continues to sit on dealer balance sheets. So just to make sure I'm hearing you right, $120 billion or so a year in the Fed increase in their balance sheet, that equates to about $10 billion a month in purchases from the Fed. And then our projections are for as much as a trillion or so in net treasury supply in 2020 and 2021, which equates to about $80 billion per month. So we're still going to have treasury collateral increasing by $80 billion per month while the Fed increases the balance sheet by only 10 Is that right? Yep. And that's why I think we can't call this combination of repo operations and an increasing balance sheet a full solution to the collateral problem. But as you said, it's definitely a step in the right direction. So I think the big question then becomes, how do spread markets react to the Fed's intervention? And to do that, let's try and put some numbers around where spreads are trading now. So looking at just SOFR OIS right now in the three-month term, it's trading above 20 basis points. It's averaged over 20 basis points for all of 2019. To try and get a handle of what a quote-unquote normal SOFR OIS spread would be, the average over the past five years prior to 2019 was just 10 basis points. So it's roughly doubled this year. In addition, a normal relationship between LIBOR and GC, it's pretty much averaged between 15 and 20 basis points in the five years prior to 2019. And this year, it's averaged only three. So as the Fed intervenes on the short end and tries to restore some of these relationships back to their historical averages, we can call, say, 10 basis points on SOFR OIS and 15 to 20 on LIBOR GC, quote unquote, normal. And maybe this is what a standing repo facility would get you back to normal levels, but we're not going to get a standing repo facility. At least it doesn't look that way in the near term. So what does a partial solution look like? We should see some retracement of the sort of breakdown in these relationships we've had in 2019, but we don't think we're going to get back to normal levels until something significant changes, whether that's a Fed repo facility or a change in the pattern of treasury issuance. So what do I say for, quote unquote, partial retracement? I think it's fair to target 15 basis points or so on SOFR OIS. And we should see some of this relief that the Fed is providing at the short end help bring LIBOR down a little bit as well. And so we could get LIBOR GC back to, say, 15 basis points, whereas right now LIBOR is actually trading lower than repo. So what does this mean for swap spreads? Well, we plug this into our our model for the fair value of swap spreads, given its fundamental drivers. And a LIBOR GC spread of 15 basis points argues for swap spreads going to seven basis points. Or if the market viewed it as a full solution, and and so far OIS went back to 10, we could see swap spreads go as wide as 10. Now, that feels a bit optimistic in the current scenario, given how heavy swap spreads have traded so far this year. But we do think that this Fed intervention is a game changer. And while the near-term view might be that spreads are going to remain a little range-bound here while everyone kind of holds their breath and which see how quarter and September goes. But assuming things go relatively smoothly as we expect, swap spreads will likely bounce significantly in the medium term. And we set our targets at seven basis points at the end of the year for two-year swap spreads and just above zero for five-year. But all of these assumptions 
just kind of hold LIBOR constant, but maybe that's not even a fair assumption. Yeah, and to be clear, LIBOR doesn't really make sense, at least in terms of where other short-term rates are trading. Three-month LIBOR, like you said, has been trading on top of three-month repo for the better part of a couple of months now. Fundamentally, this is a tough one to kind of reconcile. If LIBOR still actually represents where banks can fund in unsecured term markets, we would expect that they would take advantage of these relatively attractive rates compared to the secured funding levels of repo. Yeah, I mean, theoretically, with LIBOR, it is you could issue a CD and use it to fund repo at a positive ARB, right? Now, granted, there are some balance sheet constraints in there likely, but still, it doesn't make sense. Right. And it's probably the case that this waterfall methodology is the reason that LIBOR is so low right now. So as you might be aware, that ICE Benchmark Administration revised the way that banks submit LIBOR earlier this year. And the process is pretty opaque, but it's probably safe to say that it results in a LIBOR rate that sort of lags other short-term rates. At least that's what we've seen for most of this year since the new methodology has been put into place. And so at a certain point, we expect a sort of swift repricing in LIBOR that we expect to happen later on this year. And if we do see that, if we see LIBOR start to move significantly higher than repo, you know, those targets you just mentioned could actually be pretty conservative. We could see swap spreads widen even more than that. And then it's important to note what would bring about this widening in LIBOR. And, and our view is that it would be funding needs most likely from foreign banks. Typically now with the waterfall methodology, we've gotten used to seeing these more volatile swings in LIBOR. Everyone remembers earlier in the year when we saw LIBOR print lower by four basis points in a single day, twice. And at the time, we talked about how that's a 99th percentile move and you know, fun with numbers. That's supposed to happen once every 10,000 years or something like that. And it happened twice in the span of two months. And that's directly relatable to the waterfall methodology. When you have a level one transaction, you actually move the curve. And days when you don't have a level one transaction, you fall back to older issuances or even just model implied rates based off what other short rates are doing. And then in that lens, it makes sense that LIBOR just kind of trades in line with other rates until you see a repricing based off actual issuance. And there's a lot of reason to think that that'll happen during Q4. In the past few years, we've seen a significant decline in, in cross-currency bases right around late September, early October, when that three-month point rolls into the new year. And I think that's a very important trend to watch in the coming week. If we see a significant drop in the currency bases this year, like we expect we will, it implies that there is foreign desire for U.S. dollars. When they look up to lock up dollar funding with the expectation it would be more difficult to do so at the end of the year. And so if we see that decline, it would imply funding needs that could proceed or coincide with LIBOR printing wider. And not only that, but just by virtue of the waterfall methodology, a significant tightening in the cross-currency bases could alone pressure LIBOR wider. If LIBOR widens as we expect, one impact will be wider swap spreads, potentially wider than the targets we've listed now. But another thing widening LIBOR might mean is we start to see some impact on credit spreads, which despite all of this drama at the front end over the past week, credit spreads still really haven't really moved, right, Dan? Yeah, they've actually tightened fairly substantially over the last month and a half or so. Investment-grade corporate spreads have benefited from the global demand for yield in the accommodative Fed, and we see some really strong demand technicals in that market. Where do you think spreads are going in Q4? Yeah, we still see that push and pull where, you know, we've talked about in previous episodes that fundamentals don't really 
argue for spreads being as narrow as they are, but all the technical factors that you talked about, a global reach for yield, and we continue to see spreads coming in and coming in. But going forward into Q4, those technicals might reverse. Looking back at the past five years, just seasonally at spreads, the October-November period is two of the most challenging months of the year for spreads. And it, it all makes sense and through the lens of year-end. Everybody knows that January is the heaviest issue with month of the year in all of our markets, in the high-quality markets in particular, as much as 20% of total annual issuance volume comes in January alone, and a similar number in corporates also comes in January. And at the end of the year, with an eye towards January being when the issuance floodgates open, it becomes less punitive investors to simply sit in cash and just wait for January issuance when you're hopefully able to pick up more new issue premium. And that logic holds even more true this time around, given where short end rates are, sitting in cash, quote unquote, isn't even punitive. So I think we could see some technical weakness in spreads going forward. And also it's worth mentioning here that if the Fed is successful in keeping repo rates under control through the combination of intervention and and a larger balance sheet, that should put upward pressure on spreads as well. We've talked numerous times about how part of the reason for such narrow Treasury spreads is how heavy Treasury issuance has been, how much Treasury overhang is sitting on dealer balance sheets, the erosion of that liquidity premium that argues for spreads coming in. Now, if that starts to go in reverse and you're seeing Treasuries come off dealer balance sheets, you're seeing dealers able to convert those Treasury holdings into cash through the Fed more easily, that also argues for wider spreads. So, you know, just from a technical perspective, I think you could see wider spreads in Q4. And then we can go back to some of the fundamental reasons we've talked about that could flare up in Q4, potentially from increasing risk aversion. Yeah, certainly possible. The trade war continues and it's been going on for the better part of a year now. That should start to show up in corporate profits next quarter. Geopolitical risks generally are elevated now with growing tensions between the U.S. and Iran. There's still that Brexit risk that's kind of in the background that looms. Yeah. And any one of these has the potential to increase significantly in investors' minds in the fourth quarter. So I think it's fair to say from a top level, our outlook is that we expect spreads to go wider both in swap and credit markets beginning potentially as early as the beginning of October, even if the next few weeks are likely to be relatively well-behaved. So looking at now as a potentially attractive time to lighten up on any spread positions or at least migrate hedges to LIBOR where you're likely to still get the attractive carry that asset swap positions now offer, but also not underperform on a mark-to-market basis because we expect swap spreads to widen. looks like an attractive time to implement some of those views. And then before we wrap things up here, Dan, I wanted to at least talk quickly about some of the implications of the most recent funding event on the the SOFR-LIBOR transition process. Does the funding market stress we saw over the last week have any impact on the LIBOR transition in your view? I think it's probably a mild setback. The Fed is going to have to demonstrate that they can control this rate. I think having an unexpected spike of the magnitude that we saw last week from the low 2% to five and a quarter is fairly unacceptable for a reference rate, particularly when that spike is driven solely by some unforeseen technical factors. So yeah, I would say it's a mild setback, but in the grand scheme of things, I think if the Fed institutes a repo facility or demonstrates that these repo operations are going to be sufficient to keep SOFR under control, then I think it's probably just going to be a blip on the radar. Yeah, I I agree with you there. And I think finally, we should talk briefly about 
the reaction in some sofa floaters on the back of sofa printing at 525 basis points, particularly through the lens of lockout periods, which have been a bit of a sticking point in some sofa deals as we're trying to find what the market standard is going to be. Is it going to be a look back? Is it going to be a lockout compounding versus simple average? And Dan, you looked at this a little bit. What'd you find? So we found basically two identical bonds with coupon payments one day apart. And so one of these bonds had a lockout date just before that spike to 5.5, and the other had a lockout date beginning on that five and a quarter percent. And what we found was actually that these returns for the quarterly coupon varied by about six and a half basis points. Now, keep in mind, these were bonds issued by the same issuer and were otherwise completely identical, except for a one-day difference in the coupon payment. Now, because of the lockout dates, one got that five and a quarter percent spike for two days of the calculation, and the other had it locked out or didn't get it at all. But six and a half basis points when you're talking about a sulfur floater is really an incredible difference. And highlights, once again, that if you're involved in the sulfur floater market, you really have to be looking at what exactly the structure of, of the floater you're buying is. I mean, it's hard to say that this blow up in sulfur had any degree of predictability to it. But if you were to somehow be able to accurately predict when sulfur was going to increase meaningfully, there is a large divergence in returns for these bonds if, if you can take advantage of them. That said, that's unlikely. So I think maybe from a higher level, the impact of the recent volatility in SOFR on SOFR FRNs is we might start to see a shift away from the simple average lockout methodology. Yeah, and also a move to compounding would sort of minimize some of those outliers in the coupon payment calculations. So that's another way to sort of mitigate this risk. Yeah, you would think issuers, particularly ones who got locked on SOFR at 525 basis points for a couple of days, would start to look at this and say, maybe I don't want to take the risk of elevated funding costs for a day or two and just go with either compounding or a look back period style of issuance instead of the simple average lockout we've seen. So I think we should just wrap things up with a quick bottom line on some of the topics we've covered here today. It was a wild week in funding markets, but the Fed has now intervened and is providing a meaningful, if partial, solution to the excess collateral problem. In the very near term, it's difficult to see spreads move much as the market kind of holds its breath and waits to see how September quarter end goes, but we expect it will go relatively well given the Fed's intervention into the short end. If that's the case, we expect to see spreads move wider beginning in early October, and we set our year-end targets at seven basis points in twos and one basis point in fives for the end of the year. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com slash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy efforts as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. Please email us at daniel.belton, B-E-L-T-O-N, at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show is supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been edited and produced by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts.
Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. FEMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of, issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.